You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 48. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. George Floyd was murdered by a police officer on Memorial Day, Monday, May 25th, 2020, in the 3700 block of Chicago Avenue South in Minneapolis, Minnesota. While he was face down in the street, hands cuffed behind his back, Derek Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for nine minutes. George died, pleading, I can't breathe, and crying out for his mother. He died because his pleas were ignored. His manhood was ignored. George Floyd died because justice and love were ignored. More than that, and what has been all but ignored by politicians, the media, and protesters, is that George was also a Christian man, which for me in my belief system makes him my Christian brother, it makes him my brother. And in the words of George's own pastor, quote, George Floyd was a person of peace, sent from the Lord that helped the gospel go forward in a place that I never lived in, said Patrick P.T. Nguolo, pastor of Resurrection in Houston. The platform for us to reach that neighborhood and the hundreds of people we reached through that time and up to now was built on the backs of people like Floyd. His faith was a heart for the third ward that was radically changed by the gospel. And his mission was empowering other believers to be able to come in and push that gospel forth. And now, now because justice and love were denied to George Floyd and so many other black men in this country, Violence has erupted in the streets of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota, in Chicago, New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Portland, Houston, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Phoenix, Columbus, Ohio, Denver, and Las Vegas. Shouts of no justice, no peace can be heard in the streets of every major city in this country. But I wonder, what will justice look like? Who determines what is just and unjust in the case of George Floyd? Is it the legal system? Is it the prosecuting attorney versus the defense attorney before a judge and a jury? Is it mob justice? Is it the justice of a few or the justice of the many. And then, perhaps more pressing than all of that, is the question, how long until we know peace again? So today, to honor my brother, and to let somebody much more gifted than I ever hoped to be, 
in matters of oratory and rhetoric and speech. And someone who I was raised to regard, to hold in high regard. In fact, when I became a Christian after my conversion from atheism, one of the first preachers that I heard that struck me deeply was Martin Luther King Jr. Because I was raised to believe in that credo to judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. And then as I got older, like I said, especially after my conversion, I picked up the works of Dr. King, his letters. When I worked at Barnes and Nobles, when I was at the seminary, I came across a collection of his sermons that had been recorded. And I listened to them over and over and over again because his cadence, his delivery, his choice of words, everything about his preaching style impressed me. And so today, rather than read and comment, provide commentary, which I can't possibly do justice to Dr. King's words, I just want to read an excerpt for you from a sermon that Dr. King delivered entitled, Loving Your Enemies. And no matter where you fall at as far as your political ideologies, your philosophy, your feelings and thoughts right now around the murder of George Floyd, I'm not hearing much in the way of, especially even from Christians, which is why I struggled even today, intellectually and emotionally, to express God's word and to express myself as a preacher in the sermon for tomorrow. And when I find myself in those times, and I'm struggling, I go back and I turn to those who I have high regard for, who I respect, who I listen to when I'm at a loss for words, or I don't know whether I'm thinking correctly, whether my decisions are for the good of my brothers and sisters or whether they're self-serving. So I always go back to Dr. King. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about loving our enemies right now. The media doesn't cover that because it's not provocative enough. It doesn't get eyes on the TV. I don't hear politicians saying it at all. They're busy equivocating and trying to cover their own backsides, trying to control the spin on the events that have happened, at least in Minnesota, the last 72 hours. So let's do this. This is Loving Your Enemies by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta. He was driving the car. And for some reason, the drivers were very discourteous that night. They did not dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember very vividly my brother, A.D., looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of their power. And I looked at him right quick and said, 
Oh, no. Don't do that. There'll be too much light on this highway. It will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have sense enough to dim the lights. And that is the trouble, isn't it? That as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations, having looked at other civilizations that refused to dim the lights, and they decided to refuse to dim theirs. And Toynbee tells that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because of civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim the lights. And if somebody doesn't have sense enough to turn on the dim and beautiful and powerful lights of love in this world, the whole of our civilization will be plunged into the abyss of destruction. And we will all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense. Men must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness. And it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chains of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that by love. There's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated, or the individuals hated, or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic. It is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin hating somebody, and you will begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. There is nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person, and that person can be beautiful, and you will call them ugly. For the person who hates, the beautiful becomes ugly, and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad, and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the true becomes false, and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. The symbol of objectivity is lost. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. And this is why Jesus says, love those who hate you. That you want to be integrated with yourself. And the way to be integrated with yourself is be sure that you meet every situation of life with an abounding love. Never hate because it ends up in tragic, neurotic responses. 
psychologists and psychiatrists are telling us today that the more we hate, the more we develop guilt feelings and we begin to subconsciously repress or consciously suppress certain emotions. And they all stack up in our subconscious selves and make our tragic, neurotic responses. And may this not be the neuroses of many individuals as they confront life, that that is an element of hate there. And modern psychology is calling on us now to love. But long before modern psychology came into being, the world's greatest psychologist who walked around the hills of Galilee told us to love. He looked at men and said, love your enemies. Don't hate anybody. It's not enough for us to hate your friends, because to love your friends, because when you start hating anybody, it destroys the very center of your creative response to life and the universe. So love everybody. Hate at any point is a cancer that gnaws away at the very vital center of your life and your existence. It is like eroding acid that eats away the best and the objective center of your life. So Jesus says, love, because hate destroys the hater as well as the hated. Now, there's a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they are mistreating you. Here's the person who is a neighbor. This person is doing something wrong to you and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they are mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they will hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says, love. There is something about love that builds up and is creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. Love your enemies. And our civilization must discover that. Individuals must discover that as they deal with other individuals. There is a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came in this world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. No, it is a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity, and see the love of God breaking forth into time. 
It is an internal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a, de a generation depending on physical force, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. So this morning, as I looked into your eyes, and into the eyes of all of my brothers in Alabama, and all over America, and all over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I am foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us. And we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. Oh God. Oh God, help us in our lives and in all of our attitudes, to work out this controlling force of love, this controlling power that can solve every problem that we confront in all areas. Oh, we talk about politics. We talk about the problems facing our atomic civilization. Grant that all men will come together and discover that as we solve the crisis and solve these problems, the international problems, the problems of atomic energy, the problems of nuclear energy, and yes, even the race problem. Let us join together in a great fellowship of love and bow down at the feet of Jesus. Give us this strong determination. In the name and the spirit of this Christ we pray. Amen. And again, I'll include a link to the sermon. You can read the full transcript for yourself. That was just a small piece of it. But just one last thought for me, and then I'll tune out. Yesterday, as I was driving to go train and spar, I've been thinking all week long, but it kind of came to a head yesterday in the car. At least for myself as a man, I've noticed over the years that I can say I love you to other women, to girls, to boys. I can say it to old ladies. But for some reason, men are uncomfortable saying I love you to another man. And sure, we can talk about the cultural baggage that comes with that statement and how we have essentially equated that phrase with men loving other men in more than a platonic or filial sense, which is, in my opinion, ridiculous. Childish even. Juvenile. But I think there is something to this that we can't even say to another man as men, I love you. We can say it jokingly, I love you, man. I love you, dude. You know, I love you. 
But we can't say it in earnest. We can't be serious when we say it to the extent that it actually makes us uncomfortable to even have the conversation or to think about it. And I am as guilty as anybody of this. For decades, decades, I was incapable of telling another person that I loved them, even girlfriends, because I grew up in a house where the, it just wasn't said. And I grew up in a family where it wasn't said. When I would go to friends' houses or girls that I dated in high school and college and I would go to their houses and I would hear them say to their parents and their parents say to them, I love you. I became uncomfortable just being in the presence of that statement and the emotions that I could see being communicated. And it wasn't until I got clean and sober that it was even possible for me to entertain the idea, the notion that I would say to someone else with conviction, I love you. That's why from time to time I have to remind myself to say it. Because, of course, what's behind that, to me anyways, is an immense expression of personal strength. Because it takes no strength to say, I hate you. It takes no strength to spit curses at someone else, to damn them, to say, I hate you. I hate what you stand for. I hate what you represent. I hate what you say. I hate what you do. I hate all of you existentially. I hate you. That doesn't take any strength. Definitely doesn't take strength of character. It doesn't take any moral courage to say I hate you to someone else. But to say I love you, especially for a man to say to another man, I love you, in the most filial, platonic, intimate sense, I think that's something that we all would be better off not only thinking about more often, but saying more often and just being honest and owning it and recognizing the reason that it's so difficult to say and express that for us as men in particular is because we haven't been taught to do it. It hasn't been modeled for us by our elders, not widely speaking. And we're afraid, we're uncomfortable with it, we're anxious about it, we're fearful we might get laughed at. We might get mocked. We might be called names. Or we could recognize that the most creative, redemptive, and transforming power in the whole universe is love. And that there are millions of people who are desperate to be loved to hear those words spoken to them which have not been spoken to them in so long that they're not even aware, they don't even realize how imprisoned within themselves they are because of a lack of love being shown and expressed to them. Our world is overflowing with hatred and violence. Our world overflows with the desire to avenge ourselves on those who have done us wrong. And if you want to be mocked, if you want to be cursed, if you want to be shut down, stand up and say to the one who wronged you, I love you. I forgive you. I love you. To say to those who are your 
family and friends, I love you. To say to those who you value, who add value to you as a human being because of their existence on this planet, I love you. Because I guarantee you, as a pastor, having sat in hospice at people's bedsides when they are dying, that the one thing that they regret most is not spending enough time with their family, with those whom they love. And then within that, the nut of it is never expressing their love for their family or for those whom they loved. And now, on their deathbed, it's too late. The number of confessions I've heard by family and friends who buried someone, who are now full of regret because the last conversation they had was an argument or it was some inane, benign conversation that meant nothing in the moment, who come to me after the fact, full of regret and guilt because they were never able to say, I love you, to the one they now mourn. If we don't love each other, then how can we hope to create a better world for each other and for our children? If we don't love each other and express that, how are we to redeem the murder of George Floyd and all of the other black men and people in general who have been murdered through police brutality? How can we redeem that? How can that wound ever heal itself? How can we ever stop bleeding as a society and as a people if we don't embrace love? How can we transform the world if we can't even change our own heart so that we are free to express to friends, to family, and even to our enemies and those who hate us, I love you. In fact, I love you and I would rather die than hate you. And so to all of you who listen, who support the podcast, who give me the feedback, to all of those who are listening, I love you. Truly, from my heart, I love you. We'll talk again soon. Peace.